My name is Matt, and I, I do serve as the worship pastor here, so you're, you usually see me up here playing guitar, singing, leading worship, but um, man, this morning I have the great and awesome privilege to open up the Word of God and to do a little bit of preaching. So I want to start off first just saying thank you. Um, man, over the last couple of weeks, I've had like an unbelievable amount of of uh, emails and DMs and texts and all just people just saying, hey, man, heard you preaching, praying for you, you know, just really uplifting and encouraging. And then last night, you know, I'm laying in bed, can't sleep at all because my mind is just going crazy. Um, and I'm getting these texts in from folks like, hey, man, pray, praying for you for tomorrow. And I'm like, you know, considering it, thinking about it, like, man, I'm very fortunate um, to have a community like this where people are um, so prayer focused, and and I just started thinking about the like the number of people that have reached out, and I was like, that's a lot of people. Like this never happened before. Like, wow. Oh wait a minute. Oh, they think I'm going to train wreck. <laughs> oh, oh, these are these are prayers of mercy. <laughs> it's a hedge of protection. It's it's for, not just from Satan, but for me. No, I, I'm kidding. Um, hey, even if you did pray with that uh, motive, I'll take it. I'll take all the prayers. I feel very prayed up right now. Um, hey, so just a quick little season recap here. Um, so we have two more sermons on the book of Deuteronomy. Today we're focusing on some of the final events of Israel concluding their trek through the wilderness and their preparation to enter the promised land. And Moses has been their leader throughout this entire time. But uh, there is about to be a transfer of power from Moses to Joshua that God is orchestrating. Moses had displayed some disobedience and uh, some lack of faith. And God lets him know, hey, you're not going to lead um, these people into the promised land. It will be Joshua that does so in your place. And we'll look next week, we'll look at the death of Moses. But today, we'll be looking at one of God's final and uh, very unique moves with Israel as he prepares them. So before we get into that, I have a question for us. So if a foreigner asked you, what is it really like to live in America? What would be the best way to respond? So like if somebody came up from another country and they're like, hey, you know, I hear a lot about living in America, the American dream, yada, yada, yada. What, what, what's it really like? How could you reply in a way that covers the wide range of life in America, right? That's a complex question, right? So maybe you could start here. You could say, hey, read through this. It's a copy of our Constitution. Many claim this document is the first of its kind, acknowledging rights to America's people, given to them by their creator, not by the state. Then in turn, the people give rights to the government. It's pretty unique. Read through that. Maybe that'll give you a sense of, of our freedom, of our uniqueness. Or how about this too? Check out these two books. The Early Years Through 1877 and 1877 to Present Day. Now you'll know where we've been and maybe where we're headed. You'll learn about our biggest triumphs and you'll also learn about some of our greatest failures. So all of these resources combined, they would provide a ton of information, right? But what about the heart, the feeling? the emotion, the guts of living in America, how would we communicate that? I think the answer is through art, American music, 
lyrics, poetry, the creative process. A set of laws doesn't give us the full picture, nor does a book of dates and events. For example, what if, in addition to the Constitution and those history books, we also said, hey, hey, dude, in between reading uh, these things, uh, listen to these songs. The Man in Black by Johnny Cash. The Times They Are Changing by Bob Dylan. Country Roads Take Me Home by John Denver. Tennessee by Arrested Development. Subdivisions by Rush. Yeah, Rush. (laughs) Come on, come on. I'm guessing, or at least hoping, you've heard of at least one of these artists. But let's take a look at what each one has to say about life in America. So in his song, The Man in Black, Johnny Cash, he was infamously known as the Man in Black. At his shows, he would wear head-to-toe black, and people would often ask him, like, why, why are you dressed that way? He wrote a song about it. This is his response. Well, we're doing mighty fine, I suppose, in our streak of lightning cars and fancy clothes, but just so we're reminded of the ones who are held back. Up front, there ought to be a man in black. I wear it for the sick and the lonely old, for the reckless ones whose bad trip left them cold. I wear the black in the morning for the lives that could have been. Each week, we lose a hundred fine young men. How about the times they are changing by Bob Dylan? Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are changing. It's powerful. How about Take Me Home, Country Roads? song reminds me of growing up. Just this song, you know, about uh, living in, in the beautiful countryside of America. I hear her voice in the morning hour. She calls me. Radio reminds me of my home far away. Driving down the road, I get a feeling that I should have been home yesterday. Yesterday. Country roads take me home to the place I belong. I really want to sing it right now. West Virginia, <laughs> West Virginia, mountain mama, take me home. Country roads. Or how about Tennessee by Arrested Development? Anybody familiar with this one? Yeah. It's a story of a black man reflecting on his youth growing up in the South. Hip-hop group called Arrested Development that came out in the 90s. Fantastic. Check this out. It's going to be hard for me not to wrap this. Then out of nowhere, you tell me to break. Out of the country and into more country, past Dyersburg and Ripley, where the ghost of childhood still haunts me. Walk the roads my forefathers walked, climb the trees my forefathers hung from. Imagine penning that lyric. Ask those trees for all their wisdom. They tell me my ears are so young. Go back from whence you came, my family tree, my family name. For some strange reason, it had to be he guided me to... Tennessee. Finally, how about Subdivisions by Rush, a song about growing up in the suburbs. Growing up, it all seems so one-sided, opinions all provided, the future pre-decided, detached and subdivided in the mass production zone. Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. Subdivisions in the high school halls, In the shopping malls, conform or be cast out. Subdivisions in the basement bars, in the backs of cars, be cool or be cast out. So what would that take? Like a couple minutes? In that time span, we got perspective 
on American prosperity and American poverty. The Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, and the contrast of two generations of thought. We got to hear the thoughts of a black man finding himself as he grows up in the South and struggling with America's past. We got a glimpse of the monotonous, sometimes mundane life in the suburbs where anyone who thinks differently is an outcast. That's a lot for a few lines. If you combine this with some history books in the Constitution, I think you might be getting a bigger scope, a bigger picture of what the American life is like. So here's another question. Is art important for the Christian life? Is art important for the Christian life? The heart, the emotion, the feeling. Do we need these things present in our walk with Jesus? I think so. And I don't make this point because I'm artsy or because I enjoy listening to music or because I'm more right-brained. I make this point because a third of the Bible is written in poetry. Wrap that around your mind. A third of the Bible is written in ancient poetry. I make this point because the majority of God's speech, when God speaks in the Bible, it's represented as poetry. I make this point because it's what God does in Deuteronomy 32, the soul of Moses. God has Moses write down the law to give to the priests and set it next to the ark. This law is essentially all that we've been covering in Deuteronomy. So it's very lengthy, as you know. It's very detailed, as you know. It even contains what happens when Israel obeys or disobeys the commands. In other words, it is plenty, plenty of information for Israel to know how they ought to act and conduct themselves and why they should do so. But for God, it's not enough. He's not done. After the second law has been delivered, God says to Moses, Now write down this psalm and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promise on oath to their ancestors, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and calamities have come, up, have come on them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. So God, even after he delivers a lengthy set of rules, also gives Israel a song. Why? At least two reasons. To act as a witness for God against Israel after they go astray. And two, to testify against them because it will not be forgotten by the children of Israel for generations. The question I have now is how? Not why. Why is answered, but how? I get what the song will do, but how is it that the song will do this? Yet the law does not seem to function in the same way. What is it about the song that makes it operate differently? The song communicates in a way that narrative or, or legal code simply cannot. 
And this is what art does. Art, poetry, music, painting, it ignites our imaginations in a way that even historic narrative cannot. Other types of writing and communication, they absolutely have their place and benefits, but they do not speak to our hearts and our souls. They do not speak to our emotions and feelings deep down the way that a song does. And God is so often concerned with those very things. Check it out. Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me what? Your heart. And let your eyes delight, delight in my ways. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice. Rejoice over you with gladness, emotion. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Not just singing, but loud singing. This is our God. Psalm 43, 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. But perhaps the most compelling scripture for me concerning our hearts, our feelings, and our emotions towards God is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. The Greek word for heart here, it's not literal heart. It means the inner self, the volition, the desires, the stuff inside. How do we get to that? If God gave us the Bible as a means to know Him, and one-third of it is written in ancient poetry, it's probably time we take art very seriously. Is art important to the Christian life? Heck yes! Yes! God wants access to the deepest ravines and the darkest hideouts of our hearts. And the most effective way into those places is through artistic means. The Song of Moses makes it 100% undeniable that it was Israel who strayed from God. And the law does this too, but the song makes them feel it. The song makes them know it in their souls. So let's look at how God is communicating to Israel in this song. And if you're familiar with the Song of Moses, you know it. this thing is long. It is very long. But I, I still feel compelled to read the whole thing. And one of the reasons I do so is because oftentimes in the scriptures, you know, we, we come across things and they just kind of become a little automatic, maybe face value. Um, and I get it, like all of scripture is God-breathed, written by people, inspired by God. But this particular section is literally a song that was literally written by God, given to Moses. Like as I was preparing this week, that kind of just blew my mind over and over and over. Like, this really is a song that God wrote, and we're going to read it. I could just get up here and read this song, and that would be enough. We could continue singing and then go about our day praising God. So I'm going to read this song, and I'm going to read it with emotion because this is a song. This is poetry. All right? Here we go. Remember, this is a song that God wrote for Israel. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like the dew. 
like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. And in other words, everything God says is going to nourish. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They, Israel, they are a corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. In other words, God did all of this. He set all of this up. In a desert land, he found him, Israel. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. The Hebrew here for apple of his eye, it means little man in God's eye. That means God was walking so closely with Israel that Israel could look at God and see their reflection back in God's eye. It's amazing. It's poetry. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, and spreads its wings to catch them, and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. That's important. He made him ride on the heights of the land, and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock, and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from the herd and flock, and with fatted lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan, and the finest kernels of wheat, you drank the foaming blood of the grape. God gave them everything. He nourished them. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. This word Jeshurun, it means Israel, but it's only used in poetry. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, filled with food. They became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their Savior. In other words, Israel became so fat, their skin became oily sleek because of all the goodness God was giving them, and they just kept consuming and consuming and consuming, and they became like a big, dumb animal that actually kicked against the one who was feeding them. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods just showed up and was like, hey, I'm God now. Hey, we'll worship you. No. Gods, your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock you, who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them, Israel. Because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. In other words, all right, have it your way. 
You're going to worship these gods who just showed up? You're going to worship these gods who aren't gods at all? I'm going to allow these nations to come in and overthrow you. These nations, they don't even, they're not even worthy of being called nations. They have no understanding. For a fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down to the realm of the dead below. It will devour the earth in its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities on them. I spend my arrows against them. He's talking about Israel. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. The young men and women will perish. The infants and those with gray hair. So everybody. I said I would scatter them and erase their name from human memory. But, but I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done any of this, has not done all this. Any, in other words, God is not going to totally erase Israel, even though he 100% should, even though it is in his right to because they broke the covenant, his covenant. He's not going to do it because if he does that, you know what's going to happen? These other nations who he said aren't aren't nations at all, they're going to come in and they're going to take all the credit and they're going to give all the credit to to their gods. And God is saying, not on my watch, not happening. They are a nation without sense. We're back to Israel. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. It didn't have to be this way. How could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock has sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are filled with poison, and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve? and sealed it in my vaults. It is mine to avenge, mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants, Israel. When he sees their strength is gone, and no one is left, slave or free. In other words, God is going to wait until it is 100% undeniable that it was only God that saved his people from these other nations. He is going to wait until there is only one man left standing so that it is undeniable that it is the Lord at work here. He will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded. I will heal. And no one, no one can deliver out of my hand. This is a song that God wrote. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. Drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, you nations, 
with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. That's heavy stuff. Church, do you see emotion in that? Yeah. After Moses teaches this song, he says to the people, take heart. All the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, everything I just read, this song, that's what Moses is talking about. They, this song, they are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Heart, feelings, emotion. So what can we learn from this, church? What's our takeaway? God gives Moses a song. God sings over Israel in Zephaniah 3.17. Singing seems critically important to God. So it is, is it important to us? Let's take a look at Sundays. For Israel, the law was read to everyone together every seven years. The law, Deuteronomy. Uh, for us, we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ together every seven days. Each Sunday, we have the opportunity to be reminded, much like Israel, that God has been faithful, that He is good, but we also get to be reminded that God sent the long-awaited Messiah, Christ Jesus, to live a sinless life, to die on a cross, and to be resurrected three days later, giving eternal life to all those who believe in Him. I'll take an amen there. Thank you. We spend roughly half our time together hearing the word preached. We spend roughly the other half of our time together engaged in poetry and music, what we call song. The use of song is not, it's not unintentional. Song has been a part of God's economy since day one. Song has been a part of God's relationship with Israel since day one. Song has been a part of of the worship service in the temple. Song was a part of the earliest Christian weekly gatherings of the first century. These are all well-documented truths, both biblically and extra-biblically. So our takeaway today is to engage in song, to embrace it, to open up, to have a posture that's open with it, to not be afraid of the emotional response that accompanies song, feelings, emotion, heart. God wants all, all of us. So, why do so many Christians treat singing as optional? Many Christians will attend a worship service and spend the first 20 minutes of the service and the last 10 minutes of the service relatively unengaged. Now, I understand we are all in different places in our walk. And I understand that some of us come in on Sunday very broken. I get that. But I I also think there are many Christians today who take up a closed posture during song with, with this mindset. I'm really here for the sermon. I'm here for the heralding of God's Word. Theology is of the utmost importance. Singing is the mere tee-up for the sermon. Church, I know that this is true because I've been in rooms 
where church leadership has used this language. Not here. But I have been a part of that. The singing is the tee-up for the heralding of the word. And I confess that me, that for me, for my first four or five years of my walk with Christ, me, a lifelong musician, I couldn't stomach the time of singing in church. I thought it was cheesy. I thought it was contrived. I thought it was poorly executed at times. I thought some people shouldn't be up there. I thought some people were up there for their own glory. I didn't like the song selection. I didn't like what some people were wearing. I only preferred hymns. I thought people who raised their hands weren't emotionally stable like me. (laughs) Can we please get to the sermon? And hopefully the sermon goes an extra 10 minutes so we can cut the last song. I seriously thought these things for probably the first three to five years. You know what I was like? I was like Jeshurun, heavy and sleek, fat with my own thoughts and preferences and judgments. My will kicking against the one who's trying to soften my heart so that I can open my mouth so that praises will fly out, blessing those around me who hear, bringing glory to the one who made me, reminding myself that he is God and I am not, and beginning to make room for Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my heart through song. I'll take an amen there too. It's time to embrace God's design. God gave us his word, what we call the Bible. In it, over a third of it is is poetic. When God speaks, he usually does so within poetry. That has to tell us something. God is a songwriter, a a literal songwriter. He he sings in the Bible as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even in times of war, 2 Chronicles 20, God sends the musicians and singers into battle first. He doesn't send the Marines. He sends the guys in skinny jeans and salon haircuts. (laughs) He doesn't send Mike Tyson. He sends Harry Styles. Imagine that. You know, I'm joking, but you get the point. There's something about poetry, song, singing that is essential to us knowing and relating in the fullest sense possible to an eternal, all-powerful, and all-loving God. Our takeaway, church, is to sing, to engage. In their book, The Other Half of Church, put out by Moody Publishers, Jim Wilder, Ph.D. in clinical psychology, and Pastor Michael Hendricks, they explore what brain science has to do with spiritual growth. We actually, we read this as a staff here. It was a fascinating read, one of my favorite reads. Um, As you can see in the slide behind me, the, the left brain processes things like conscious thought, speech, strategies, problem solving, logic, and stories, the very same things that you would experience in a sermon. The right brain processes things like individual identity, group identity, emotional attunement to others, assessments of surroundings, and relational attachments. They point out that our brain's right hemisphere actually processes faster or has more horsepower, as they put it, than the left side. So the right brain has more horsepower than the left side. This is true for everybody. At the same time, they observe, get this, that the majority of our American Christian experience in the church has to do with which side of the brain activity? Left side. They write, left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrine, willpower, and strategies, but neglects 
right brain, loving attachments, joy, emotional development, and identity. Ignoring right brain relational development creates Christians who believe in God's love but have difficulty experiencing it in daily life, especially during distress. I'm going to read that again. Ignoring right brain relational development creates Christians who believe in God's love but have difficulty experiencing it in daily life, especially during distress. Do you have difficulty with the intersections of God and your emotions? Do you turn them off out of fear that it seems trivial or immature. God wants all of you. He wants all of us, every part, the left and the right brain. He wants you to love him through obedience and he wants you to express an emotional range that befits a God that is love. The scriptures say God is love. He wants you to know him through his word and he wants you to love him with all of your heart and soul, so open up in song. He gave us art, music, singing, song, poetry, to better understand the depths of his heart, to try and grasp the ungraspable, that even on our best day, we are galaxies far from God's standard, from his holy standard. So he sent his son, Jesus, to live up to that standard because we could not. Let's open our mouths. Let's sing together, let's cry together, let's rejoice together and celebrate together. Let's stop holding back. This doesn't make us emotionally weak. It makes us emotionally strong and spiritually healthy. It makes us better theologians, more spirit-filled, more God-like, and more Christ-like. Amen? All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you that, that you love us despite what we bring to the table. We're much like Israel. It's easy to point the finger, but we could easily point the finger at us. So thank you for loving us despite who we are, what we do. So Father, in turn, may we praise you today and all the rest of our days with all of our might with all of our strength, our souls, and our hearts, all of the stuff inside that makes us what we are, would we use all of those things to praise you? Would we use both our left brain and our right brain to know that you are God and we are not, to know that you sent your son Jesus, and then to praise you out of joy and contentment and peace that comes from being full of your spirit. God, we love you. Help us to express that. Meet us where we are. We pray all this in Jesus' name.